0: I had to learn everything about these type of drugs on the spot. I knew what was radioactivity. Obviously I worked a lot with radioactivity, but not in the sense of making a drug. That was to me what I had to learn, and I remember the first meeting, things were flying way above my head. <laughs> I did not understand anything of what people were saying.
1: From Lab Occupier, this is NGB Ideas stories about the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in Canada's life sciences community. Hi, I'm Jim Wilson, and on the show today is Bruno Paquin of Adam V. Global Radio Pharma. Listen in as Bruno shares behind-the-scenes details of his professional and personal journey to becoming CEO of one of North America's leading CDMOs in the radiopharmaceutical sector. This podcast was recorded in 2023. Bruno... Thanks so much for joining us today. I understand you were born in Montreal. Where exactly did you grow up?
0: I know it may be a bit boring, but I was born and raised and pretty much bulk of my life spent in Montreal. I did spend a few years in the U.S., but really all in Montreal.
1: Montreal is one of my favorite cities in Canada. Were you right downtown? Were you in one of the suburbs?
0: The suburb, it's called Laval. It's on the North Shore. But close enough to Montreal, I spent quite a bit of time there. And at some point I did move to downtown.
1: Okay. I can't understand what that draw might be. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I also understand that you were the fifth of five children and I was also the fifth of five kids. I had two sisters, you had three sisters and a brother. And if your family is like mine, your siblings still tease you about being an afterthought. Yeah, I think I was actually. I would appreciate you telling us about your parents. I'd like to start with your mother. What was her name and what was she like?
0: My mother was Irene Hall. Her dad was coming from Scotland. She was a great person. and She raised us as a family, but quite early in her home life, she got fed up of that. She went to work, which was kind of a bit early. You know, women started to go back to their career. My mom did that quite early in her life. The side of that is that I was home alone, pretty young, and I, I kind of enjoyed that. And my mom was really working her career, taking care of me still, and very full of life and full of activity. She would go drive everywhere, bike and everything. She was a great model to me on how to embrace life and enjoy it to its maximum.
1: Well, that's great. What
0: work did she do? She started as a librarian at the city local library. And then she became a translator and then she worked at the University of Montreal in a small study center for the Quebec culture.
1: Your father was an actuary at an insurance company. Could you tell us about him? My father
0: was really career oriented, you know, the typical father of the time. Come late and then pretty absent for a while. But at least on the weekend was very present, so I cannot complain. He was working in an insurance company pretty much all of his life and became the VP of finance at some point in that company and then retired. He had a very good life in terms of his career, but he was not nearly as active as my mom. But the good thing though, is that we went camping almost all weekends, and we would just go with a tent, first the whole family. I told you I was really late, so at, at some point it was only him and me going every weekend camping. So I really enjoyed the, those moments with him.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun. I read that a high school biology teacher is the person who got you interested in molecular biology and genetic engineering. Could you tell us about him? Who was he?
0: His name was Roger Dupuy. It was really a wild wow moment, if you will. He was talking about what he called genetic engineering. It, really got me interested. And he had this few examples where he said that we would be able to genetic engineer bacteria to eat up the oil spoil in the ocean, for instance. He, he was putting this as a very grand idea, right? And it really captured my imagination. And I said, oh, this is what I want to do. So from that point on, I really worked my way to work in genetic engineering. What, at least what he called genetic engineering, turns out to be molecular biology. I did work a lot in molecular biology, and now I'm in radiopharma. Things evolved, but I did go to my PhD in molecular biology.
1: In high school, you were also part of the student union, and you played on the volleyball team. It sounds like high school is something you enjoyed.
0: Absolutely. In Quebec, we have what we call CEGEP, which is kind of a intermediate school between high school and university. I did play volleyball as well in college, and that was great. I really enjoyed that. for me, it was more of an activity, though at some point it became a bit competitive. I was good, but not (laughs) top of the team, but good enough to have a lot of fun. So, and I was in the student union as well for maybe two years. We were really trying to get the biochemistry department to be on the map at the University of Montreal. So that was pretty cool too.
1: At CJEP you enrolled in two molecular biology classes that had an impact on your career path. What happened there?
0: It's not really at CEGEP actually, it was at the university. A new teacher was hired at the Department of Biochemistry, University of Montreal. I have to say the first course I had with him was not very good. The guy came from Germany, not very good French speaking. Really tough to follow what he was trying to say. but. Still, I really got on the content rather than the message. And I had the same moment, maybe not at intense, but close to what I got in grade three of high school. So I went to see the guy, started discussing with him, and I decided to do my PhD with him. And that was a very, very good decision. It was all molecular biology, sequencing of mitochondrial DNA, and there were established phylogenetic relationships. But I really enjoyed that. That was absolutely great.
1: Enjoying school is half the battle. It sounds like university was something that, for lack of a better term, came naturally to you, wasn't something that you had to struggle through. Is that a fair comment?
0: It is a very fair comment. I knew this is what I needed to do in order to do genetic engineering. which was still somewhere in my brain. So that's a very fair comment.
1: Was it at university that you met the woman who would become your wife?
0: Yes, absolutely. I was doing my PhD, actually. She was originally from Morocco, and then she did her study in France and came to Montreal for a postdoc, which usually is about two years, maybe a bit more. And then we really came to meet each other. She was working in a lab, same floor, same department, same general field. And we went to a conference together. That's how it started. And what was her name? Nusa.
1: After you graduated, I understand you wanted to join a lab in San Diego, but she could not move to the States. So you recalibrated. Could you tell us about that episode?
0: What happened is that I had my eye on a lab in San Diego that was doing a lot of molecular evolution, right? I was still working in molecular biology, but I kind of took a turn a little bit to work on molecular evolution, which is not a comparison of genetic sequences and inferred phylogenetic relationship there was a guy in san diego had a very influential lab in the field and i really wanted to go and the thing is my wife at the time was still doing her postdoc and it was very difficult for her to just stop and go It wasn't a question of visa, it was really a question of career a little bit, and a child was on the way. We had a child quite early in our uh, relationship, so I said, okay, then I'll find another group. There was another one in Albany, New York, at the State University of New York, which is about maybe four to five-hour drive from Montreal. At least a weekend commute was possible, so I decided to go to that lab. At the end of the day though, something happened at her postdoc and she decided to quit and come with me. (laughs) So, I could have gone to San Diego, but pretty happy in Albany. So that's fine.
1: So, the two of you were in Albany while you were doing your postdoctoral work?
0: Yes, absolutely. She found a job. You could relate this as a postdoc, but it was more like a real job in a research lab at the Bassford Center, which is kind of the state research lab in Albany. And I was doing my postdoc at the state university.
1: I think it was at this time when you got a call from a professor at the University of Montreal who asked if you would consider coming back to be an interim principal investigator and a lab director for a short period of time. Could you tell us a bit about that?
0: That was very interesting. I remember that day very well. We've been in the U.S. for a good four years and a half. I extended my postdoc. We really liked it there, actually. We were even considering applying for a green card to stay in the U.S., so we hired a lawyer, started all the procedures. For whatever reason, the lawyer went silent, no longer returning our calls. And about the same time, I was very late in the lab that day. It was almost between 10 and 11 p.m., and I received a call from the professor of the lab that my wife was working in when I met her. He was unfortunately terminally ill of cancer, and he was looking for somebody take over the lab in order to continue the research she was doing, allow the students to finish their degree, and allow the technician and all the other people to find a transition and, and another job. That was this position you mentioned, and that, to me, was very interesting, so I decided to accept. I first came back to Montreal to start the job. My wife finished her job in Albany and came back about a year later with the kids because we had another kid in the meantime. And that's how we came back to restart our career at the time in Montreal.
1: You ran that lab for about a year and a half. And because you stepped in, all of the students except one were able to finish the programs. And it gave every member of the staff an opportunity to find a new job. That is such a heartwarming story. I think it speaks to who you are.
0: Thank you. It was a big challenge. I have to say I was still very green. Freshly off of my postdoc, and I came back and had to direct the scientists, lab technician type of work, others, master degree, others, postdoc, others, PhD degree. At the first, it was a little difficult because I was kind of the new kid on the block, pretty much equal to some of the people in the lab, basically. But after a few months, everybody realized that I was there to help them, to do as good as I could, so it went very, very well. And indeed, everybody was able to relocate successfully, except one PhD student. She was too early in her program to finish in a year and a half, but he worked with the department and she was able to finish her program in another lab within the same department. So at the end, all was good.
1: Oh, that's great. So in January, 2000, you became the head of the technology development unit at Genizon Biosciences and you were employee number six. How did you end up there?
0: But basically that company was founded by five individuals. They were aiming at founding a company involved gene discovery and using the Quebec population as a founder population, because for the few generations when the new friends came, there was a lot of inbreeding and not a lot of mixing with other populations, because at the time there was native and they were pretty segregated. And that created a pool of genes that is good for genetic studies. I'm not saying it's better or worse, that that's not the point. The point is that there's some disease genes that get amplified at the higher incidence than in the general population. So that makes them easier to identify. So that's the whole concept of founder population. So we intended to exploit that characteristic to identify genes involved in complex disease. I was looking for a job at the time, and I started really networking, and I was referred to the CSO, the Chief Scientific Officer of that company, and was hired. So I was the first non-founder employees of that company.
1: While you were at Genizon, you transitioned from lab research into business development. What exactly prompted you to make that move?
0: That was when I shifted to the dark side of the science. At the time, we had this grand idea of making genome-wide scan, making a lot of genotyping, but there were no technology allowing for genome-wide scans. We decided to have a unit to develop the technology that we would need to conduct our studies, and that was what I was responsible of. And I had three people in my team. So we were four all together trying to develop this technology. And we did develop a technology to uh, make some genotyping. It was not a very high-throughput technology, but it did work. We had a patent. It was one of the milestones for financing the companies that was very good. However, in Papel, there was some company like Asymmetrix or Illumina, who had tons of money dedicated solely to the development of these types of technology. So obviously they came up with super high throughput, very efficient technology. So our group became obsolete, right? We had no more need for what my group was doing. So at the time they were looking for somebody who could understand the science and at the same time be a part of the business development, kind of a field scientist, if you will, I was basically responsible to take the data of all the studies we were conducting, put them in a nice presentation, and then go to pharma companies and try to sell the results and the science in order to get contracts. That's why I was part of the BD to start with, but still as a scientist. I did a lot of travel at that time. It was more than 50% of my time traveling. So it was a bit difficult to some aspect, interesting to some others that was the job and that's how I got introduced to the business development team. And then with time, I became the head of the business development team. So less and less science, more in business development.
1: Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jim Wilson, and this is the NGB Ideas Podcast. Before we get back to the show, please make sure you click on the follow button so you don't miss any of our future episodes. I understand that company grew to about 135 employees and then downsized back down to 15, and you were one of the 15 who were kept. As you say, the writing was on the wall. So in 2011, you joined a company called Immunity, which is a contract research organization that specializes in services for biotherapeutics and immunomodulators. I understand you were a gain- employee number six. So there seems to be a theme here. And I have to ask, was there a third company where you were the sixth employee?
0: Not at this point. That
1: trend stopped
0: right there. What was your role at Immunity? I came to Immunity as the VP Business Development. By the time in my career, the shift to business development was confirmed. I I really liked what I was doing. And the fact that I was in life science also kept me close to, to the science, although uh, I became farther and further from the lab, but I could use my scientific background to do my job in business development. So Immunity, as the name strongly suggests, was involved in immunology, who we were testing their level of immunogenicity using different technology, including one technology that Immunity developed pretty specifically to test immunogenicity in ex vivo, which means we would take the cell from human subjects and do the test in a petri dish, but still using human cells. That's a very, very good assessment of the immunogenicity of the biotherapeutics. And then if there is some immunogenicity, then the sponsor can either choose another compound or work with it, knowing that it's likely that once it's injected in the human body, there would be some reactions. That was a very good time. And yes, I was employee number six, but we kind of grew pretty fast to uh, over 25 employees. That's something I'm pretty proud of as well.
1: And this was only 12 years ago. What was it like working at a CRO in Montreal at that time? Nothing special, I would say.
0: What was special about immunity is that we were a very small and niche CRO, but that could have happened anywhere in the world, not because it was in Montreal. Nothing special on that front.
1: It sounds to me like switching from lab research to business development was a very good move for you. It was,
0: actually. I really enjoyed the business development part of the job, and it was done in a way that it was pretty gradual. I could learn as I went, but I never took any MBA courses or business type of courses. I really learned the job as I went. It was, I think, a perfect setting because I was still in contact with the science and learning how to be as good as possible in business development.
1: This went on for a few years. And at one point your wife decided she wanted to come to Toronto, correct?
0: She was born in Morocco. She went in France, two different cities for the, the equivalent of the master and then the, the PhD. And then she came to Montréal. We went to Albany. <laughs> At the time, she was working for a CRO of her own, more of a clinical type of CRO. They were acquired and the project she was working was terminated. And she kind of find this job. It was in Oakville, not Toronto per se, but the GTA. She said, oh, no, I'd like to go. I said, okay, go. I said, so we decided that she would go. At the time, the kids were old enough. Anyway, it was not as uh, difficult as when we were in Albany. So I said, okay, go. If you like it, then, you know, I'll join you. So for one year and a half, I was commuting most of the weekend. And then I said, you know what? Time to move for me as well. And how did you do
1: that commute? Did you drive? Did you take the train?
0: I took the train once. I drive quite a few times. And at some point, the driving was very difficult because you drive and for a weekend it's pretty short so i started to use a carpooling system it was a clangaride or amigo express and i found somebody this is crazy because the guy was working in montreal but he was living on the shore of lake erie since 17 years at the time he would leave Montreal for Lake Erie, whatever town he was, around 7 p.m. on Sunday night and drive back to Montreal. So I started riding with him pretty much every weekend.
1: Wow, that puts a super commute in a whole new category for me. I'm glad you survived that. In our podcast, we ask guests about their wins and losses that they've experienced in their lives. I hesitate to go down this path, so please forgive me for asking, but shortly after you joined your wife in Oakville... She was diagnosed with cancer and passed away nine months later. And first, please accept my condolences for your loss. Thank you. And this is a difficult question, but without getting into details, would you mind if we talked about her for a moment? Yeah.
0: Within two years of the event, I would say no, but I think now I accepted it to the best of my uh, ability. And If I break out, we would blame internet, as I told you before.
1: She sounds like a really special lady to be able to have that independence and the partnership that you've described with her sounds so great. She was involved in research. She had ambition and just loved life.
0: Yes. If I were to give you details of her life, it's pretty amazing because she was born in a country where it became a bit better, but at the time, and even now, where women's rights are not the top priority, let's say, or the main concern. She was still able to get to school and manage to continue school at the time when even parents would say, no, no, uh, girls do not go to school. They stay home. They help with cooking. They help with house cleaning, but she really fight that to keep going at school. And then she went to France against all the will of her family, but she still Went there, got her own grant. Their family could not financially support her. She was working. They call this fe ba which is uh, basically keeping uh, the children of the family she would stay in and in exchange get a free room. She really kept her focus to study, get her career going, I would say against all odds at the time. It was pretty amazing what she could achieve. And when she came in Canada, she started a relationship with me. You can guess that I'm not Arabic, not Muslim. Her mom took that very, very well. It was very difficult. The relationship with her mom broke down for a while. Relationship with her brother broke down for pretty much ever. Uh, I'm sorry. But still, we continue. At the end, when I shifted between genocide and immunity, I had vacations. I went by myself in her family in Morocco. (laughs) Really? And I stayed by myself with her mom. You know, I don't speak Arabic. She doesn't speak French or English. A lot of body language. But the relationship I had with her mom was super excellent.
1: Isn't that wonderful? We shifted.
0: Even with her brother, I was able to connect with him. We went a few places together. I kind of restored the relationship. It took a while, but at the end, it was very, very good.
1: Well, wow. Good on you. She sounds like she was a very special lady. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. This all happened in the lead up to the pandemic. I can't imagine handling this on its own, but then leading into the pandemic, how did you get through that period?
0: I would say that was the toughest time of my life, really. My wife passed away in January 2020, and the pandemic was declared in March 2020. So I had to live through the passing of my wife. And then all of a sudden I had to stay home alone. I have my two kids in Montreal. They're not here. It was very tough because all of a sudden, you know, I lost the social contact with my worker and obviously the contact with my wife. It was not a good time to be working from home alone for pretty much every day. I was lucky enough because my two daughters, my younger one is a teacher, and at the time she was teaching online. She spent one month with me she was still teaching, I was working, but, you know, I was able to get a lot of social interaction with her. And then when she went back, my other daughter came for her month as well. She is physiotherapist and she was working in a private clinic downtown. You can imagine that at the pandemic, not many people would go downtown for their physiotherapy session. People would go at lunchtime or they would find a break, one hour in their working day to go to get their physiotherapy treatment. With the pandemic, nobody was downtown, so the clinic has to close. So she came, spent a month with me. And I have to say, before these two visits, I was really close to uh, being uh, very depressed. But with these two visits, it got me back on track. Not to say that I was super happy and good with it, but it really put me back aren't a good try. Although it's still difficult for now, I accepted it. I don't have a choice anyway, but I accepted it and now I can live with it pretty good.
1: I'd like to turn the clock back a little bit. You came to Oakville prior to your wife's diagnosis. You were looking for a job. Yes. In November 2018, you accepted the role of Director of Business Development at the Center for Probe Development and Commercialization in Hamilton. How did that come about? Did you apply for the job? Could you share the backstory with us?
0: It happened pretty much the same way, the three jobs, except maybe the first one that we discussed at the University of Montreal, the job at Genison, the job at Immunity, and the job at CBDC. I never apply to any job. I never look to job ads. I just go and start networking. And my goal when I network is really, I start with people I know, obviously, and I explain the situation and what I want from them. It's one or two contacts. And when I go to the next level, it's the same thing. I'm looking for a job, but in fact, I'm looking for contacts. And the goal is to 15 minutes. You're in, you say what you do, you ask for advice, you ask for one or two contacts, and you're out. That's the cycle. And at some point, you hit somebody who will say, I know somebody is looking for a skill set that you have. And that's how I found those jobs. The only difference is when I came to the GTA, My network at the GTA was fairly limited. Through my work at Immunity, I did have professional contact clients, but it's very limited. So I went on LinkedIn. I found this guy seems to be pretty well connected. So I said, Hey, can we just meet, you know, I'm moving to the GTA. I don't have any network and I'm starting to build. And
1: I got, you know, a good five people who accepted to meet me totally out of the blue. So it's completely like a cold outreach saying, hi, I'd like to meet you.
0: Absolutely cold outreach. And I told them I'm looking to build my network. And one of the guys that that I met, we had lunch, we discussed, and at the end he said, you know, contact this guy who was the CEO of CPDC at the time, Joe McCann. He said, I think he's looking for a guy in business development. So I said, okay. So I contacted Joe. We meet in a Starbucks somewhere, Burlington. So my goal was 15 minutes in and out with my two contacts. I was there for a good hour, hour and a half, and that was a job interview. That was not a contact.
1: And you didn't know it was a job interview going in? No, but at some point, I figured it out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) After 30 minutes, I said, okay, this is a job interview.
1: I'd appreciate you explaining to our listeners what the CPDC is and what is its mission.
0: CPDC is an acronym. It stands for Center for Probe Development and Commercialization. That's a center of excellence. In the late two thousand, federal government started a program for what they call center of excellence. And they would create those with the mandate of taking research in the university and commercialize it. That was funded by an entity called NCE, or Network of Center of Excellence. The CPDC was at the time founded by John Valiant, pretty good scientist doing radiochemistry at McMaster University. And the purpose of the CPDC was really to provide a reliable source for radiopharmaceuticals to Ontario. And we started with FTG, which is kind of a sugary molecule. It's a form of glucose that we would label with the radioisotope, F-18 in this case, what it does is that it's a molecule that is used for diagnosing and staging cancer, they need a lot of energy, so they attract this sugar molecule and because of the radioisotope, it emits a photon, a light particle that can be detected in a scanner. So you would see a good image of the stage and the extent of the cancer patient. So in 2008, CPTC was formed and I would say 2009, 2010, we started producing FTG at a fairly high scale and we ended up distributing FTG for a lot of centers in Ontario. And we started a joint venture with UHN, the University Health Network, created a company called Campro doing pretty much the same thing in terms of research tracers. We would do other tracers than FTG, but the more research type of focus. And with time, there was some very good technology developed at CBDC, which gave rise to the first company, Fusion Pharmaceuticals, which is a very good company. in The radio pharmaceutical field was spun out of CBDC. All R&D and the IP was spun out in that company. The founding CEO of CPDC moved to be the CEO of Fusion Pharmaceutical, and now Fusion has raised over four hundred million dollars, and you know they're doing very well. But CPDC went on and started to offer its expertise for GMP manufacturing on a fee-for-service basis. And at the end, when I became CEO of CPDC, I would say that ninety to ninety-five percent of our revenues and activities were pretty much concerned with the GMP manufacturing of radio-pharmaceuticals on a fee-for-service basis.
1: You became CEO in March 21. You joined the company in November 2018. That's a pretty meteoric rise. Was it predetermined or was it just serendipitous?
0: No, no, that was not predetermined. I was actually happily working toward retirement. And I uh, was leading the business development group at CPDC, and you know I, I enjoyed that and I was pretty happy with that but Joe moved on to another company he founded Point Biopharma which is another very successful biotech in our industry and then the CEO position became open but somebody else was promoted CEO at the time but after a year that person quit to join as well Point Biopharma so I took over at the time. But after six months was confirmed. I like to say permanent CEO, but you're only permanent until you are.
1: Until you're not. <laughs> <laughs> not too far after your confirmation, Adam V sprung up. What was the idea behind Adam V? Why was it created?
0: I mentioned that the bulk of CPDC's activity was GMP manufacturing on a fee for service basis. So we were operating a non for profit center of excellence. That didn't really fit the mandate of a center of excellence. So what we decided to do, we said, okay, now is the time to get a real for-profit CDMO or a real for-profit CMO. There were two reasons driving this change, other than being a for-profit activity within a non-for-profit company. The first reason was that NC program was being terminated. So, for CBDC, that was $3.5 million per year of grant revenues. We knew at the time that it would be coming off the statement sheet. In provision of that loss of revenue, we started really developing more and more that CMO activity in order to compensate. And within two years, we were able to increase the revenues by $3.5 million. So, when the grant was terminated, we were still being able to continue operating. But that got us in a very nice and very good growth curve, and we kind of were reaching out to the maximum, in terms of capacity, of the space that was granted to us by McMaster University. So, at the time, we had two choices, right? We accept the status quo and we stay exactly where we were, but that also means that we keep doing almost like a for-profit company on a university campus. It's not the mandate of a university campus. So we decided to take the next step, which is okay, now we are very good at what we're doing. We have this global recognition uh, companies all over the world, UCPDC. So we decided to build on that expertise, that recognition, and that know how and spun out Adam B and get all the contracts, all the for profit activity into a for profit company. We raised $40 million back in August 2022, and then we're using that capital to build a new facility that will allow to continue our growth and not only continue the growth, but also diversify our offering with much higher throughput and customized solution for our sponsors. Because now what we did, we took academic research lab and we retrofit. GMP production lines in those labs. We really did the most of what this space offered us, but at the same time, that space was not built for GMP production. So we're spread out over four buildings on the campus, and one of the buildings were over three floors, clearly not optimal. But still, we used that space and we generated a company that is now doing $25 million of revenues, which is tremendous when you look at the conditions, right? And the new facility, which would be purpose built for what we want to do, will allow us to increase efficiency drastically and then get to the next level of what we are currently doing.
1: This had to have been a Herculean effort. I cannot imagine the stresses. That you have gone through. The Series A financing that you did was with Avigo and a company based in the U.S. And I have to ask, was Canadian venture capital at all interested in what you were doing?
0: In general, I would say venture capital was not very interested in what we were doing because venture capital will go for the higher risk higher return type of investment so they will invest in company i mentioned fusion pharmaceutical point biopharma so those are the type of companies that will attract venture capital the type of investment that a company such as V, which is basically a service provider would be more on the private equity type of investment which are looking for your risk lower return so that often goes together obviously so go, without going into too many details, has three arms in their investment. They have a hedging fund, they have a VC fund, and they have a private equity fund. And obviously, they invested into Atom V via their private equity fund. Now, to your question, there's a lot of private equity firms as well in Canada. It's not only a U.S. thing. For whatever reason, it's difficult for me to understand, but I really tried to get Canadian company or a Canadian investment into the company. And so far, I haven't been successful. I got a lot of interest, a lot of discussion, but every time at the end, the opportunity was declined. And IvyGo, I didn't go to IvyGo because once you start talking to investment companies, the word is out. And then you attract more than you go out. At the end, I was getting more phone calls than I was doing phone calls. And Abigo, they called me. I didn't even know them at the time. So they called me. We started discussing. They were very interested. And boom, we closed the deal. But it's not because I didn't try to get a Canadian investor or that they didn't want, just didn't pan out.
1: So is Adam V technically a Canadian company or is it now an American company?
0: Today, it's a Canadian company and it will remain a Canadian company. At least we have no plans to relocate the company to the US. The new facility is in Hamilton, maybe a 10-minute drive from McMaster University campus, so we're going to stay in Hamilton, in Ontario, and in Canada. But if you look at the legal term of how you define a Canadian company, or what you call CCPC, or Canadian Corporation Private Company, we still are CCPC. Ibego has not yet invested enough to remove
1: the CCPC status, but it's coming such is life. I'm sorry you you experienced that aggravation. Many academic scientists who are trying to commercialize, I think, encounter the same problem. And I wish I had a magic wand. It's frustrating as someone on the outside of this looking in, trying to help companies through their commercial real estate and not being able to say, here, call this person. If there's anyone listening, please call me. (laughs) I very much like to talk to you about some folks who are in a similar situation as you were. Where do you think the radiopharmaceutical industry is going to be in the next few years?
0: The radiopharmaceutical industry as we speak is really in a growth phase. And if you were to look at the pipelines of all the molecules and the therapeutic that are being developed, there is a very large number of molecules in development at the preclinical and phase 1 stage. Not that many in phase 2, phase 3 and on the market. Although radiopharmaceuticals as type of drugs has been around for a long time, it was mostly for diagnostic purposes. I did mention earlier the FTG. FTG had been manufactured for decades, but it's a diagnostic molecule. There were a few therapeutic molecules manufactured over the years, but it would be mostly like the isotope per se. It's not a targeting type of drug. Recently, the radiotherapeutics are basically used as a targeted radiotherapy, which means that at the molecular level, we are able to attach the radioisotope to a molecule that is targeting specifically some receptors. And if you can find a receptor that is overexpressed or only expressed in a type of cancer cell, then you bring the radioisotope specifically to the cancerous tissue. And the best Example of that is a molecule called PSMA, which stands for prostate-specific member antigen. That's a receptor that is highly overexpressed in prostate cancer cells. Regular prostate cancer cells would not express that, and other regular cells, not as much either. So, you have the perfect example where you could use that type of strategy to target prostate cancer. And, And I say that at the current time, there's a molecule on the market, it's called Pluvicto, that is showing a lot of promise. You would see the image. Once the prostate cancer becomes metastatic, the cell tends to accumulate in bones, but they still overexpress this molecule I was talking about, PSME. You take a PSME targeting imaging agent, and sometimes it almost looks like an X-ray. You see pretty much all the bone structure, but it's because you have Trusted cancer cells all over those bone structure. And then there's four treatment within six to nine months. And then boom, your body is clean. So it's pretty impressive. There's still some things we need to do because unfortunately, what seems to be a complete remission doesn't last over time in those cases. So I think the next step, there's two things the first is to find other targets because we're pretty good with prostate cancer, but we still need to get into other type of disease. Green tumor is one that we're pretty good too, but we need to expand that to other type of cancer. The industry is working very hard. And the other thing is that we need to find a way to achieve complete remission over time. And one possible way toward that is that radiotherapeutics are accepted as a third or fourth-line treatment or even in, in the case end-of-the-line type of treatment. Patients receive that when there's not much hope for any other type of treatment. So what we would like to get, and the industry is moving toward that, is to be able to treat patients at the earlier stage with radiotherapeutics and then at this moment maybe we would be able to achieve a much better results in terms of remission over time because we are already achieving outstanding results on the short time. Now we need to get better on the longer term and I think that could be one of the solutions.
1: I appreciate you offering that explanation and I'm smiling because I see part of the future of oncology research being explained to me. And I'm a member of the board of directors of the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, which is why we are organizing the Next Great Big Ideas Summit in October and why we're doing this podcast. Listening to you talk is so inspiring. I'm really enjoying this conversation. This podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, which is a fundraising event for McMaster Children's Hospital that is taking place in Hamilton on Monday, October 2nd. We're grateful for the support of the TMX Group and our sponsors, Omniabio.com and NovoNordisk.ca. For details on becoming a sponsor, please go to NextGreatBigIdeas.com. With everything on your plate you may not have time to, to even think about my next question, but I'm interested to know what it is you enjoy most about your job. One
0: aspect of my job that I really appreciate is pretty much what we do. I like to say that the job description, even when I was doing BD, but maybe even more the CEO, it's, it's simple. It's three words, smile <laughs> and wave.
1: <laughs> well, you got that nailed down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Exactly. So this is one aspect. There's a lot of discussion. Since we're working in the scientific field, there's a lot of scientific discussion, and I appreciate that a lot. And being the CEO, I still work quite a bit on the business development side of things. So uh, I still enjoy that quite a bit. And on the every day, it's the power of what we do. It's the thinking that what we do will help patients get a better life. And ultimately, hopefully, get patients to get remission, at least in some type of cancer, if not all the types of cancer. And I have to say that the industry that we are working with is a very difficult industry because the drugs that we manufacture have a shelf life anywhere between a few hours to 14 days. I think the one that we have the longest is about that 14 days, and the bulk of the drugs is pretty much four to seven days. And we ship those all over the world. We don't have time. We cannot stockpile inventory and ship on demand. We manufacture on demand. And the drug within that time frame has to get to the right place, to the right physician, to the right patient. It's not an easy thing. We're always on the stress. Uh, If anything happens between ordering the isotopes to our place, we also produce some of these isotopes, but not all. And the manufacturing, the human error or failure, the equipment, and then the shipping, the mishap or whatever. Every step becomes super important. I'd have to say that's a bit stressful because we know there's a patient somewhere and we ship as far as Asia and Australia. So we know there's a patient waiting for that drug and that might be his or her goal. And then we have to make sure that the drug comes there. However rewarding it is, it is also very stressful. So every day there's discussion. Oh, this have an issue there. We have to circumvent it. We have to work around it in order to make sure that the patient gets the drug. And we do it very efficiently. We have a very high reliability, over 95%. Even if we get in the 97 to 98%, that means 2% of the time, the patient goes to the hospital and sometimes they live not far, but some of the time, they're a bit of travel to get there, and they don't get the drug. These are not patients in great shape, so going to the hospital is a network for them, and it's unfortunate, but that's the nature of the industry we are with. It's a very rewarding but difficult industry at the same time.
1: And being at the back door of John Monroe International Airport in the Hamilton, which is Canada's busiest cargo airport, makes a whole lot of sense for something that is so time-sensitive.
0: Oh, absolutely. So we are initiating discussion because not all of them are able to transport dangerous goods. Our drug being radioactive comes in the category of dangerous goods, but we are developing that relationship with them and we want to use that airport as much as possible. Today, most of our drugs transit through Pearson or we drive them if it's in the US.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: we do go with commercial flights. The downside of going with commercial flights is that the pilot has the final decision as to if they will accept the radioactive package or not. And I have to say that we had to make a lot of uh, (laughs) information session with Air Canada pilot at the time when we started. They would say, oh, radioactive product? No, 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 no. I don't want that in my plane. And then the poor patient would suffer because of that. So we had to make training sessions, explaining them what we were doing, the benefit of it for the patient. So I have to say that now it's very, very rare that a pilot will say no to our packages because they know what it is. And the level of dangerousity is not that big. When we're talking about a few ml, uh, the very low quantity of radioactivity, the danger, although it's there, it's not a nuclear bomb.
1: Right. It's minuscule, and it's a life-saving treatment for someone. Exactly. I've heard this before in previous podcasts where the importance of marketing is increasing with the speed of research because some members of the public are very wary of how fast things are going, and they don't realize that it is safe. They're just uncomfortable with the pace of change. One of my favorite editorial cartoons is Two Panels The first panel is the politician standing in the back of a train in front of a crowd saying, who wants change? And everyone in the crowd has got their hand up. And then the second panel is the same person saying, who's willing to change? And everybody's got their heads down. We've got a similar situation within the public's recognition of healthcare. Everybody wants change, but very few people are willing to participate in that change. And we need to help that happen.
0: Absolutely. I could say the same thing by saying everybody wants to go to the paradise, but nobody wants to die.
1: Touche. You have said a CEO is only as good as his team. Yes,
0: absolutely. You may be the best person making presentation and talking about what you do, but if you don't have the team behind you to make it happen, then the nice words will remain nice words. That's what I mean by saying a good CEO is only good as a team that if I were alone, I would be nothing. But with the team that I have and all the staff, it's not only the leadership team. Obviously, my interaction on a day-to-day basis is with the leadership team, but it's all the staff that we have, those that are making the production in the lab, those that are releasing the product, those that are ensuring that we are compliant with the GMP guidelines of Health Canada, and those that are making sure that we're also compliant with the CNSC, which is the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, because these two entities, they come to us with contradictory guidelines. And we have to deal with that, because in this production space, Health Canada would say, oh, you need to have a negative pressure so that it pushes out the pathogen, so the pathogen that's in the drug. But see and see what comes. No, 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 no. You need negative pressure because you don't want the radioactivity to go out of your production space. Seriously? Yes, absolutely, seriously. So we have to go with compartments, right? So to have the right pressure at the right place, so both are happy. So, yeah, we have to deal with that.
1: Wow. I'm so sorry that you've got to deal with that on top of everything else. Looking back in your career, are there any specific skills you've developed that you did not originally know you needed? Short answer is yes. But the funny thing, when I
0: applied to CPDC, I'm a scientist by training. I know a bit about life science, at least on the general sense, maybe not the nitty-gritty of all the science. I was talking to Joe and was talking about radio pharmaceuticals, and I had no idea what this was.
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> I said, what's this? Thank you for saying that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, I had
0: to learn everything about these type of drugs on the spot. I knew what was radioactivity, obviously. I worked a lot with radioactivity, but not in the sense of making a drug. That was to me what I had to learn, and I remember the first meeting. Things were flying way above my head. <laughs> I did not understand anything of what people were saying. So it took me a while to get up to speed and be able to talk about it. Even my CEO at the time came to me and said, you know, you can talk in those meetings. I said, don't worry. One day you will ask me to shut up. For now, I don't because I still don't understand what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you could turn back the clock, are there any courses that you think, gosh, I should have taken that? What advice would you give to students who are saying, I don't need to do that because I'm going into science? It depends what they really want to do at the end of the day. Maybe I should have
0: taken a few courses in finance and business because it took me a while to catch up on those concepts. At first, it was a bit difficult, and even now, in some instances, I still feel this lack of knowledge, and that comes back to the comment I made. I have a very good team. I have a good team in quality and good team in operation, good team in regulatory, and now I have a good team in business development. Soon, I would be just able to stay in my office with the cigar or something and enjoy the night. And that's why it's important, because I cannot be expert in all of that, Even though when you go to make a presentation, you have to make people believe that you are the expert. But at the end of the day, the experts are really those behind me making all the work on a day-to-day basis.
1: I am wondering what the best advice is that you've ever been given. Does anything specific come to mind?
0: The advice is be true to yourself, which could apply to everything in your personal life, as in your professional lives, then to me, that is what is the most important. Be true to yourself and believe in the people working with you and be transparent with them. Both for the good, the not so good, they are even the bad. Once you have established this trust relationship, things become so much easier after.
1: That is good advice. Thank you for that. You've had a very successful career to date. You're not done. You're still going strong, but we all have a bucket list. What's on yours? Professionally, it's to
0: bring Atom V to a level of operation where they would no longer need me. For now, we are still in this growth phase where we need a lot of financing. We're not done with financing. We expect to close a second round in May, which is right around the corner, right? So we're still working very hard on that. And then we have the new facility coming up. My next bucket list, professionally at least, is to get to a stage where the new facility is up and running, company is smoothly operating, and then the shift would become more on the operational side of it rather than the business slash financing side of it. it. There will always be some business side of it, some financing. By the nature of what we do, I'd like to focus to be really on the operation side of things. On a personal level, my next bucket list is basically post-retirement. Once I have the company running and operating and everything, four years-ish, maybe five, maybe six, we will see. that type of time frame is really to get into retirement. And the first thing I want to do is visit Canada from coast to coast. I've been to the West Coast quite a few times. I've been to the East Coast also quite a few times, but never as a one trip. Never been to Newfoundland as well, and never been to the Northwest Territory. I want to just go road trip and take the sweet time to visit every single province and really get the good feel of the country. That's one of the first items, at least for today, that I wish to do.
1: I wish you well on reaching that goal, and I hope it's as enjoyable as many people have experienced it. We're so lucky to live in this country. What's the next great big idea on your horizon, sir? I
0: take this professionally because I did mention that our industry is still at its infancy. Although radio pharmaceutical has been existed for a long time, I think the way we're looking at it today is very new. We have good results, but the next big idea is really to find a way to get complete remission on the longer term. I don't have the solution yet. I have a few ideas that may help, but... That's what we need to achieve as an industry. I'm not talking about Adam V in particular. I'm talking about all the service provider, the drug developer, the scientist, the radiochemist, the physician working in that field. How can we make the remission as long as possible or complete forever if possible?
1: Thank you for that. And thank you for this. I really appreciate you taking the time. I wish you and the team at Adam V all the success. Your leadership is greatly appreciated within the life sciences community, and I look forward to reading more stories about future successes. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks to you, Jen. I really enjoyed our conversation, so thank you for that. You made it very painless, so. <laughs> <laughs> which is very good. Thank you.
1: That was Bruno Paquin, CEO of Adam V. Global Radio Pharma in Hamilton, Ontario. If you'd like to learn more about Bruno and his team, you can find them online at Adam V. That's A-T is in Tom, O-M is Mary, V is in Victor, I-E dot com. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. You can find us at laboccupier.com and you can find me via email at, at com. NGB Ideas is the Canadian Life Sciences Podcast and we appreciate you tuning in. If you like what you hear, please promote us on social with the hashtag NGB Ideas. Thanks so much for listening.